Well, church, it is a joy to be with you from across the world. We send our greetings. We share a common faith in Christ has saved us by the same grace that he has saved many of you. So thank you for having me and letting me preach God's word to you this morning. Imagine a scuba diver swimming around the Great Barrier Reef. Imagine he's had a beautiful day in paradise, seeing all kinds of cool fish, uh, crabs and lobsters and all kinds of amazing, colorful beings in the water. It's a beautiful day in paradise, to say the least. However, his time is running short, and so he makes his way back to the boat. And as he's doing so, he sees a dark cave beneath him. And there's this glimmering object at the bottom of it. Aware that he is soon to be out of oxygen, he can't take his gaze off this object. And so, instead of going up to the boat and returning home, he actually starts swimming down towards it. He's kicking hard and fast, swimming deeper and deeper, yet the object doesn't seem to get any closer. And he quickly realizes that he's almost to the point of no return. He's almost out of oxygen, yet his gaze is so fixed on this object that he refuses to turn around. He goes further and deeper past the point of no return. Aware that he won't make it back up, he continues on towards the object that continues to be further and further away. His desire is fixed, and soon he will breathe his last breath. Who would do such a thing? Who would keep going down when you know you are running out of air? But actually, this chilling situation is more familiar than it seems. This actually described us all. And our text this morning is, is going to tell us a story that is even more chilling. But our problem is, we don't see how chilling it really is. But here's the good news. Unlike the diver's story, our text has a happy ending. Our text is going to reveal to us just how chilling our lives were and then just how glorious God's solution was. A remedy so marvelous, a deliverance of such such magnitude that it will be the object of our eternal wonder. So let's look at what it has to say. Please turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive, Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him 
in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in him. And so did you see the dangerous situation in our text? And did you notice the glorious deliverance? That's the effect this text is meant to have on us. And if we were to boil down the text today, this is what we should take away. The gracious nature of our salvation reserves all glory to God. The gracious nature of our salvation reserves all glory to God. Paul wants to remind us of the power that rescued us from the dead so that we might come to marvel at the immeasurable grace of God to save sinners like you and me. And this simple truth has massive implications for our lives, and it will show us just how good our God really is. And I think we can see three main points in the text, three aspects of this wonderful rescue story that's meant to shape our lives. And the first main point is this. We were helplessly dead. Verses 1 through 3. If you're familiar with this letter, you'll know that chapter 1 is packed with amazing truths, the spiritual blessings we receive in Christ. But then, in chapter 2, Paul takes a turn. And in these verses today, Paul looks back to our condition before we received those blessings. And he unpacks just how dead we were. Notice that these are past tense verbs. This is who we were before Christ. Verse 1. We were dead. Not physically dead, but dead in trespasses and sins we were walking in. Our condition was not a mixture of good and bad. It was not even one of moral neutrality. Rather, all that we did was characterized by sin. Even if we did a good thing, it was for the wrong reasons and the wrong motivation. And as a result of this, we were severed and alienated from God, who is the source of true life. And this is what it means to be spiritually dead. Moreover, we weren't stationary in our sin. Paul says that we followed the course of this world. This world, which we followed, is not in the direction of God's will, but rather is in rebellion against God just as we were. This is not good news, but it gets worse. Not only were we dead, we were enslaved. We followed the prince of the power of the air, That is, we followed Satan himself. Whether we knew it or not, the sovereign reality is, we belonged to him. Because we too were in rebellion against God. And notice that Paul says that this spirit or influence is now at work. And so we see that Satan's evil supernatural power had a powerful, compelling influence over our lives and actually continues to do so in this world. Thus, we were spiritual captives. Satan's influence held a sway as we rebelled against God with him. And thus, Paul says that we were sons of disobedience because our lives were contrary to the living God. And this just seems to be getting worse and worse. And that is Paul's point. But he continues. 
describing exactly how we were walking in sin. Look at verse 3, where he says this, "...among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." And it's interesting here that Paul switches to we. He doesn't leave himself out of that group. But he recognizes that he, like the Ephesians he's writing to, was also helplessly dead in sin. He remembers full well how he was enslaved to sin. And so he doesn't leave himself out of this group, but neither can we. Because we also were once enslaved to sin. And the language here is comprehensive. Every part of us was sinning. Our daily lives were marked by pursuing whatever we, pleasure we conceived of, both in body and mind. The NASB describes it as indulging the desires of the flesh. And thus, our endeavor was one of enjoying this world to the glory of ourselves. Now let me explain this statement with a few, with a few clarifications. This does not mean that people are as always as thoroughly sinful as they can possibly be. Nor does it mean that they don't have a conscience about right and wrong. Nor that they aren't able to perform certain actions that are good and helpful in the sight of others. Thankfully, God in His common grace mercifully restrains sin in this fallen world. However, this does mean that every aspect of human nature is affected by sin from birth. Thus, nothing we did was pleasing in God's sight. Nothing we did earned His favor. This is because we had no love for God as the motivating principle for any of our thoughts or actions. Paul goes on further. We could not change our fundamental preference for self-worship and sin. Nor did we want to. But rather, we willingly chose to rebel against God. And so Paul finishes the picture with the outcome of all this. We were dead, then we were enslaved, and we were condemned. He writes, We were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We and the rest of humanity were destined to receive exactly what our sin called for, the righteous wrath of a holy God. Think back to the scuba diver. Remember, he would not and could not turn away from that shiny object that he so desired, even though it meant death and certain death for him. That was us with sin. We would not and we could not turn away from our sinful desires, even though it meant eternal death for us. Now, why is Paul telling us all this? Is he trying to shame us? No. By no means. Rather, he wants us to see our desperate need, how great of a need we were in. He wants us to see that we were helpless. Because once we have grasped how serious our condition really was, then we can see why Christ had to die on the cross for us. D.A. Carson describes our condition when he writes this. If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent us an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. Even if he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need 
involved our sin, our alienation from Him, our profound rebellion, our death. And He sent us a Savior. If you're here this morning and you haven't turned to Christ in repentance and faith, if you haven't given your life to following Him as Lord and Savior, I want to plead with you and warn you that you are under God's righteous wrath. Your sin deserves eternal punishment. You are still dead in your trespasses and sins. And as a result of this, you stand condemned before God. And a few weeks ago, I was freshly sobered by the reality of death when my coworker passed away unexpectedly. So I want to leave here this morning without warning you, without pleading with you. God is patiently waiting for you to turn to Him. But unless you do, you will be eternally condemned for your sin after you die. Yet there is hope for even the worst of sinners. And this leads me to my second point. Although we were helplessly dead, the story didn't end there. And so we move to main point number two. God mercifully saved us. Verses four through seven. Let me reread these verses for us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So now Paul turns our attention to God's powerful grace to save us. Verse 4, But God. There's an abrupt change in the text. We've already seen ourselves, we've seen the devil, and we've seen the world. But a new character arrives on the scene. Like a superhero who flies in and changes everything. The greatest superhero ever imaginable has showed up on the scene. Not Batman or Superman or any other man, but God himself shows up. One who is not only able to save us from physical death, but from eternal punish, the eternal punishment we deserved. And note also that Paul doesn't begin with what God did, but rather he begins with who he is. Because we will see that what he did flows out of who he is. And so first we see that God is rich in mercy, showing his compassion to those who are totally unworthy and undeserving. And that mercy proceeds from his love, hence the great love with which he loved us. How great a love is this? A love so great that He was able to love us even when we were dead in our trespasses. The word even here is emphatic. Even when we are still dead in our trespasses and sins in which we walked, following the course of this world, following the way of Satan, living in the lusts of our flesh, and were by nature children of wrath, even then, God made us alive in Christ because of His love for us. 
That is why Paul exclaims in Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is clear then that God did not love us because of who we were or because of anything we did, because all that we were doing was sinning against him and his creation. The very best of our works pierced Christ's hands and his feet. That is why Paul exclaims in verse 5, By grace you have been saved. And how did he save us? Verse 5, He made us alive together with Christ. Remember, we were dead, but God took action and raised us from the dead. And he did so, verse 5, with Christ. Notice how closely we are connected with Christ. Paul says, with Christ and in Christ several times. In other words, all the blessings of our salvation are found in him alone. This reality is further spelled out in the New Testament and is often referred to as the doctrine of union with Christ. This doctrine teaches that salvation takes place in Jesus because He is our salvation, and salvation is found in no one else but Him. Thus, what God accomplished in Christ, He he has also accomplished for believers by joining them to Christ. He is in us, and we are in Him. That is good news. Paul goes on to further describe the glorious realities of being made alive with Christ. He says that we were raised up with Him. Like Christ was raised from the dead on the third day, we were raised from the dead with Him spiritually, and one day we'll be physically, and through Him we were reconciled with the Father. Further, Paul says that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So not only do we participate in Christ's resurrection life, but we also share in His exaltation and consequent victory over the powers of sin and evil. In Him, we are new creatures. In Him, we are now free Therefore, we do not have to succumb to temptation, nor the evil one's influences. For the power of God, which raised Christ from the dead, is available to us in God. And in verse 7, we see where this is all heading. The purpose of our salvation is so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, our salvation will put on full display for all to see, for all to marvel at. Incredible grace and love of God toward us. And Paul tells us this now, so that we can begin marveling now. Because we will never be able to fully exhaust the depths of God's grace in saving us, nor His love for us, for it is immeasurable. God's act of saving sinners like you and me will serve as a demonstration of His glorious grace for all of eternity. And there's one more magnificent reality in this, and at the end of verse 7, where Paul writes that we are in Christ. So we are seen as those in Christ. In other words, God views us as he views his beloved son. Once enemies of God and objects of his wrath, we are now loved by him with the same love he has for his son. This should amaze us. For this is the grace of God. In his most excellent book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer writes this. In the New Testament, grace means God's love and action toward people who merited the opposite of love. Grace means God moving heaven and earth to save sinners who cannot lift a finger to save themselves. 
Grace means God sending His only Son to the cross so that we guilty ones might be reconciled to God and received into heaven. It is about this grace that John Newton wrote in his song, Amazing Grace. We're all familiar with this famous hymn, but it becomes more meaningful when we remember who wrote it. John Newton was a man who spent his life in the slave trade, participating and profiting from its brutal inhumanity. However, on one journey, he encountered a storm that swept some of his men overboard, leaving all in the fear of death. And with both hands fastened onto the ship's wheel, this hardened sailor turned his heart to God and cried out, Lord, have mercy on me. And after 11 hours of steering, the remainder of the crew found safety with the calming of the storm. From then on, Newton dated March 21st as a day set aside for prayer and praise, because this was the day that God saved a wretch like him. He soon began learning Hebrew and Greek. He shared his conversion story in various congregations and was eventually ordained as a pastor and began to congregate his own church. God had transformed him from being an advocate for the slave trade to a man actively working towards abolishing it. But most importantly, God saved him, a sinner, by making him alive in Christ. In later years, Newton began to lose his memory. Although his thoughts were limited, Newton said he could remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Newton knew that the story of Ephesians 2 was true of him as well. Indeed, it was amazing grace that saved him. What about you? Is grace amazing to you? Or have you grown familiar with it? This text today is meant to kindle afresh that sense of amazement. Because this is your story. You were made alive with Christ, raised with Christ, and seated with Christ. So see God's love in this. Be reminded of His mercy. See the immeasurable riches of His grace toward us in Christ Jesus. Because what a transformation we've received. From objects of wrath to objects of mercy. From spiritual death to new life. From bondage to sin and Satan to freedom in Christ. Every necessary step to reverse our condition in sin, God has accomplished in Christ. And it is all a gift. And all this amazing truth is meant to produce a powerful effect on our hearts. It is meant to produce joy in our great deliverance. It is meant to produce humility as we see our great undeservedness. It is meant to allow us to rest in our great security, namely Christ, who has secured our eternal salvation. So do these characterize your soul as you ponder Christ and what He's accomplished? If not, let this text adjust your perspective in Christ, on Christ's salvation. And let it refresh your view of God, who is rich in mercy and great in love. This text is meant to cause us to cry out, Who is like our God? There is no one like our God. He alone is worthy of our lives, our devotion, and our praise. And let me again plead with those here who have not given their lives to Christ. 
See Christ, the Son of God, on the cross, crowned with thorns, His hands and His feet pierced as He labors to breathe in agony. See what He became to set you free. For He calls your sin His own, and He suffers the wrath that you deserve. He dies to save you, His enemy. He dies in your place so that you can be forgiven of your sins and reconciled to God. There is no salvation outside of Christ. There is no hope hope apart from Christ. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. But whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned. Thus I plead with you, Christ died to save you. Repent and receive Him with faith. You can do that today, right now. So now that we've seen our helpless condition and God's powerful action, we're in a place to reflect on the nature of our salvation. And this brings us to the third part of Paul's argument. Main point number three. Our salvation is totally by grace. Verses 8-10. through 10. Let me reread these verses for us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Given all that Paul has said, he draws an inescapable conclusion about our salvation. The entire process was completely by God's grace. And Paul couldn't be more emphatic. He says, It is by grace you have been saved. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works. Paul will not allow us to find a trace of our salvation in anything we did or because of who we are. It's not because you made a decision. It's not because you did a deep study on world religions. It's not because you know a bunch of facts about the Bible. It's not because you tried harder. It's not because you piled up more good works than your neighbor. It is neither your achievement nor a reward for any of your deeds. Rather, it is totally by God's grace, His undeserved kindness, His merciful generosity. Now, Paul also notes that this salvation is through faith, as he says. And so there's a tension here that needs to be spelled out. If God is the one who saved us by His grace, what part does our faith play in all this? And I think the key to this is in the following sentence, where he says, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. This means that salvation is obtained not by doing, but by believing. Because nothing of which we did saved us. Rather, our salvation is a gift of God. And even this faith that we have is a gift of God. He gives us faith. We can define faith as our trust and reliance upon Christ. So thus, faith is an instrument and the only instrument by which we can obtain salvation. And yet, even this faith was given to us by God as a gift. And He sustains our faith in the Holy Spirit. That is good news. That is why, verse 9, the whole process of salvation is not a result of anything we have done. And therefore, we cannot boast about ourselves. 
Because God's initiative in salvation leaves no room for human merit. And therefore, there is no room for boasting. And rather than boasting in ourselves, instead, with Paul and with all the men and women of faith throughout Scripture and throughout history, we boast in the Lord. Because while we were helplessly dead, He saved us and made us alive with Christ. Truly, our salvation is a gift of God by the power and grace of God. And verse 10 further supports and explains this. You may ask about this verse, what does he mean by workmanship? And so by stating we are his workmanship, Paul refers back to all that God did for us in Christ to save us, emphasizing again that it was God's work that saved us, not what we did. In fact, he uses a present tense verb now, are, to indicate that we are still his workmanship. This means that although we were saved in the past, God is still working in us to make us more like Christ. Thus, our salvation from first to last is his workmanship. We truly are his masterpiece. He created us, redeemed us, is sanctifying us, and and will one day glorify us. And it all rests in his hands. And there's a purpose to this. Paul says that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so, although our salvation is not based on our works, this new life leads to good works. Good works are, like our salvation, also a gift from God. It's not, he saved me, now I have to go do the rest. No. Rather, our future changes because God has made us a new creation with a new purpose. We, are now, we now have an amazing future of doing good. We do good works, not to earn salvation, for that has already been given, but rather, good works are the evidence and the outflow of the grace of salvation we have received. Because we've been repurposed to our original design. The trajectory of our lives has changed to one pleasing to God. Our whole identity has changed. Our whole life has changed. Our whole future has changed because of God's gracious salvation. Moreover, Paul says that these good works were prepared beforehand by God so that we should walk in them. And so this means that God designed these works in eternity past and for which he has fashioned us so that we should continuously do them. Again, it is all by the grace of God. For even the good works he sets before us to do, he divinely orchestrated, and he empowers us to do them. And notice the connection between verse 10 and verse 2. In verse 2, we were walking according to the world in the flesh, flesh, the pre-Christian way of life. But here in verse 10, we are walking according to the new life we have in Christ, and in the good works God has prepared for us. And this is actually one of the striking features of our passage. Paul draws a vivid contrast between our previous condition outside of Christ and our current condition in Christ. And so let me spell it out for us. Verse 1, we were dead in trespasses and sin. But verse 5, have now been made alive. Verse 2, we were following the ways of this world, ruled by the ruler of the kingdom of the air. But verses 5 through 6 are now under the lordship of Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. And finally, verse 3, we were children of wrath. But verses 5 through 8, we are saved by grace and reconciled to God in Christ. Notice also that the works of verse 10 are described as good works. In contrast to the wicked works of verse 9. The works of verse 9, before being made alive, were anything but good works. But a glorious change has come. In Christ, God is pleased by our works. So they're said to be good because they come from the Spirit of God Himself. We have been totally transformed so we can go live a life, not of dead works, 
but of glory to God. What a joy. In church history, catechisms have been used to summarize complex biblical truths. And it struck me that question one of the Heidelberg Catechism, written over 450 years ago, beautifully captures so much of what we see in our text today. And so question one asks this, what is your only, what is your only comfort in life and death? And this is what it richly answers. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. This is the glorious reality that is ours in Christ. The same God who raised Christ from the dead raised us from our death and sin, liberated us from slavery, and rescued us from condemnation. Therefore, our faith rests entirely upon Him. Our lives belong to Him. This is not to say that once we are saved, we'll just stop sinning. In fact, Paul will spend much of this letter encouraging the Ephesians in their struggle against sin. But before he gets to that, he wants them, and God wants us this morning, to have a rock-solid security in the salvation Christ has purchased for us. Because that salvation has made us alive and created new desires within us, and sets us on a course to increasingly put sin to death and walk in the wonderful works God has prepared for us. And the implications for our daily lives couldn't be more encouraging. And first, because first, when we fail, there is no condemnation, but instead, forgiveness and reconciliation to God and Christ. And second, since we are His workmanship, He will continue the good work which He began in us and bring it to its completion. That is why Paul can write in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The same power of God which was effective in Christ's resurrection and his exaltation has made you alive with Christ. The same power is still at work in our lives now by the Holy Spirit. We must consider another implication of this passage. As we've mentioned, sadly those who do not know Christ, they are still dead in their sin, just as we were, and they are children of wrath. They are in desperate need of rescue, and this is the seriousness that must drive our evangelism. We should never hate unbelievers around us, but we should show them the love of Christ. And true love toward them is expressed in compassion toward their helpless state that we too were once in. Just as we were helpless, our unbelieving friends, family, and neighbors are all in urgent need of a Savior. The good news, however, is that the one who saved us is able to save them and desires to save them. God is able to save anyone 
even those that seem to us to be unfathomably unsavable. Those deep in sin and despair, they are not too far off. Therefore, this passage gives us confidence in evangelism. For we see that it is not in our hands to save, but it is in God's hands. But he does commission us to be faithful gospel proclaimers. Thus, in confidence, knowing that God will save those whom he chooses, we ought to proclaim the gospel to any unbeliever we meet, no matter how lost they may seem, knowing that by the power and grace of God, they too can be saved. Because this God who rescued you through the gospel of his Son is still rescuing. God, by his grace, changes lives. And in an exercise to remember that God's grace is sufficient, look back on how God has changed you. It could be your conversion story, or it could be a season of life where you see that God really changed you. And as you remember this, I want you to tell someone about it. Tell your wife, tell your kids, tell your friends, your coworkers, but resolve to tell at least one person about what God has done in your life. Because when we remember what God has done, we can then marvel at God's gracious salvation. For this is the grace that has changed the trajectory of our entire lives. And let me end with these words from John Newton. He writes this. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. This grace that brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. When we've been here 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Please pray with me. God, we stand before you today amazed by your grace. Lord, when we were dead, when we were in rebellion against you, when we were enemies of you, you loved us and saved us by your Son. Lord, we don't deserve an ounce of your grace, yet you willingly give it to us as a gift. And so, Lord, as we wake up each morning and as we rest our heads at night, may we rest assured that we are in your grace. You have saved us by your Son. All we have to do is believe. And we just thank you that you sustain us on an ongoing basis and that we are still your workmanship, that you are making us more like Christ on a daily basis. Through your word and through the gathering of your saints and through all your means, Lord, you make us more like Christ and we could not be more thankful. And that is our prayer, Lord, that we would become more like Christ and that we would be a light in this dark world. So as we continue to worship, Lord, may you stir our hearts to praise you, to exalt your name, because you are worthy of all of our praise.